Good morning. We have a lot to cover. Concerning the history behind the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, uh, speaking for myself, I've been reading, you know, I really knew nothing about the history of the Westminster Confession of Faith until about six weeks or so ago when I decided to do this with the question that, you know, how did Westminster Confession of Faith all come to be? So I embarked on this study, and um, the pastor was kind enough to give me a few books about that and um, read them in part. Also, there is a lot of information, believe it or not, on Wikipedia, if you could believe some of it. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, there's a, a lot of history there, and I think if I read one more sentence on the history of the English church, I'm gonna go crazy. So uh, we'll give you kind of, I hope not a brain dump, but something like that this morning. Um, but before I continue on, uh, I'd like to, to pray for the Lord's blessing on this time together, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for the Westminster Confession of Faith. We thank you for uh, the divines, you know, at the time who saw it right, and even the English par parliament who saw it right to rely on the word of God to put together a system of uh, systematic confession uh, that we could all uh, look at and try to understand, to help us understand your word. Father, bless us now uh, as we uh, talk about these things and may them be edifying to us so that we may glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in this world, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so with that said, uh, I did my very best to cite and attribute sources. I might not have been perfect on this, but you know, please you know, forgive me ahead of time. Uh, I do have a bibliography uh, in the back of the first like 11 pages, so you could look at that, and if you wanted to follow up on any of those citations, please do so. Uh, Pastor Tim does have uh, a little bit of, um, you know, has those, uh, site, uh, those books if you care to borrow them from him, or you, of course you could go to Amazon or whatnot and buy those. But um, just, uh, you know, we're going to be covering a lot of non-scripture history, so before I uh, go uh, ahead, I thought in the back of our minds we should have two things in mind. Number one, it shouldn't be lost on us that God uses means uh, despite man's selfish or evil intent to result in achieving his purposes. You know, we see that in the story on, on Joseph in the Old Testament. And with that said, uh, even in the Westminster, in the Confession of Faith, in I think it's uh, chapter 3, it goes like this. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeable ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. So pretty significant. And secondly, I thought it poignant uh, I was reading from Jack Miller's, um, uh, you might say, his devotionals. Uh, he has a book of devotionals that I like to read uh, in the mornings. Uh, and it goes like this for today. He's coming out of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 through 11. God's purpose is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him 
who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So if we put that in back of our minds with all this hullabaloo going on in uh, the continent and the year in, uh, after uh, Martin Luther's life and you know the 95 theses, if you will, on the continent and also on the islands of uh, great, uh, what we know as Great Britain today, you'll see that you know God works his purposes through all these things. So, with that said, <clears throat> we talked about, you know, a few months ago, the creeds, but, you know, while the creeds are a basis for teaching foundational truths of scripture, there's many, you know, ancillary things, but important teachings to consider, which are rolled into the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Definition, we talked about the Athanasian Creed, and even the Apostles' Creed, and these all formulated basic truths, but after the Reformation and after you might call the solas, there was a bit of differing opinions on many uh, aspects of Christian doctrine, right? Uh, for example, after the five solas, uh, I mean, and, you know, theologians disagree on this. I mean, you know, Luther didn't, you know, after he posted a nine to five theses, didn't have like this really nice, you know, mimeograph sheet that had the five solas on there. So, but anyway, over time, these five solas as we know them, sola scriptura, sola Christus, sola fide, uh, uh, sola gratia, and sola deo gloria, um, you know, we now have different interpretations on what that all means. So. We have topics like what is scripture, salvation, free will, you know, the role of government, you know, still permeated, if you will, in a Protestant world. And not only that, but you still had a whole host of, you want, let's call them for simplicity, uh, Protestants uh, that are still, you know, reeling over and against the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. So you have this plethora of ideas on what Protestant theology should be, okay? And, you know, as we'll see, history is kind of messy, right? So we have governments, politics, interpersonal relationships, religion, we're all intertwined. In fact, uh, in those days, the 1500s and even before that, and 1600s, which we're going to be talking a little bit about here, is that the governments felt that they were in charge, if you will, of religion, okay? So if I'm a Roman Catholic leaning monarch, everybody else has to be Roman Catholic because if you're not, that's treason, off with your head, all right? Very bad, okay? We don't think this way nowadays, right? So, um, you know, we live in a free country, right? But years ago, it wasn't that kind of thing. So, um, it's, it's messy, and when you hit, read history, you'll find all different points of view, even now, okay? So when you read some of these uh, books that, that Tim might have on the Westminster Confession and talk about history, you're gonna have a different slant, okay? For example, um, when, I, um, when I was first ordained, I had to know the Book of Church Order, which also had the Westminster Confession of Faith. And what I didn't know uh, erroneously, you might say, is that there was a history in front of that text, but it was written by most likely a Presbyterian covenanter who had a whole different slant 
on you know the history of the Westminster Confession of Faith. So my point is, is when you read history, bear in mind that you're going to get different viewpoints on who did what and why. Westminster Confession of Faith was a subset, if you will, of what we know as the Westminster Standards. And the Westminster Standards were documents produced to reform and establish correct Christian doctrine and government of the Church of England, and in so doing, establish a unified position among the three kingdoms, which at that, those days, and still is, England, Scotland, and Ireland, okay? Uh, and these many aspects solely on the word of God. So, and we'll get more into that a little bit specific as we go. The document was produced out of what is known uh, as the Westminster Assembly. And this is a group of theologians that they call divines. In fact, uh, in one church, we had a teacher who used to always call them the divines. And, are, and I'm thinking, well, why do they call them divines? Well, are they like special? Do they go around with halos over their heads or something like that? Nay, okay. They call them divines because they studied theology. They were studying divine things. So the slang in those days were to call them divines and still, um, you know, uh, holds today. Okay, so what I thought was interesting too is, uh, uh, as noted here, the Westminster Assembly came together in the years 1643 to 1652. Okay, so in those years, uh, it was actually years of war in uh, England. Okay, there was a civil war, and I'll get more into that in, a, in just a few moments. But uh, because of that civil war, uh, the Church of England was completely in disarray. In fact, there was no Church of England as we knew it, so, or as they knew it. So they needed to do something about it, okay? And we'll get more into that in a, a few minutes. But... I already called, and I'm on page two, why call them divines, and as I mentioned, it's just a study of Christian theology or ministry, and they're known as uh, divines. Well, okay, as we move on, and I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the front side, if you will, on the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then later on I'll get a little more into history, because if I've gotten to history first, we might not get into what the confession actually is. But anyway, so why a confession and not a creed? Okay, that's another question that I ask myself. Why a confession and not a creed? And uh, if you read uh, Justin Holcomb's uh, book on creeds and confessions, you'll see he, he does a good job in explaining that. But the creeds were more basic and foundational, like the Apostles' Creed, as we all know. Very basic, very pert, uh, and they're foundational. But confessions were more detailed and systematic, if you will, to affect a total reform, to understand the, uh, God's word, to understand the message of God's word. Okay, so over time, the confessions then gravitated to take on two roles. Number one, to clarify the Protestant or Reformed theological position versus the Roman Catholic Church and their teachings. And if you look, uh, if, if you were to delve into this history, 
after Luther's 95 Theses, which was published in 1517, uh, he was then, of course, you know, excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church in 1521, and he died in 1546. But what happened after that um, is a whole, like you might say, like out of a shotgun, 40 to 50 confessions between 1520 and 1650. So could you imagine that? 40 to 50 confessions. Well, which one is right and which one is not so right? Okay, so you, you know, again, as I alluded to before, after uh, Luther, you know, published his 95 theses, it's like everybody, you know, had their Bible under the tree, you know, Jesus and me, and they came up with their own theology, right? So it's kind of like, okay, um, which one, you know, wh where do we go from here? <laughs> but uh, now you have the Augsburg Confession, uh, which was largely Lutheran in 1530. And then again, I'm on page two. Then we have a little bit before that time, a fellow by the name of Hudrick Zwingli wrote 67 articles to promote guidance to the Swiss church. Okay, so very geographical in nature, these, um, these confessions were. Uh, the 10 Theses of Bern, the first confession of Basel in 1534. Then we have a whole host of other individual cities that had their own confessions. The French Confession of Faith in 1559, and then during the reign of Elizabeth uh, I, we have the 39 Articles of Religion, which, by the way, was based on the 42 articles uh, largely written by a guy by the name of Thomas Cranmer, and he was the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1552. In fact, he wrote those 42 articles uh, after the, during the reign of, I want to say, uh, Edward, is it Edward? Uh, yes, it's uh, Edward, which he came right after Henry VIII, and we know, no, Henry VIII was just an upstanding kind of guy. But anyway, these were produced during the reign of Queen Elizabeth and were incorporated into the Book of Common Prayer. Now, I just want to stop here, okay, because this is really interesting to me. Even though during the time the Book of Common Prayer was deemed by most Protestants as a pretty good thing, there were what we call or what we know today as Puritans and Presbyterians in England. And you know what? They really didn't like the Book of Common Prayer because they didn't think that it was reformed enough, okay? Just like today, we have ultra-conservatives, we have middle conservatives, we have all this stuff, right? So even then, uh, people didn't think, um, you know, Cranmer's ideas were reformed enough. Okay. So I go on, you know, Scott's confession in 1560. So there's another confession, and this is kind of more home to us as Presbyterians, because this confession was largely written by John Knox, who was a contemporary at the time of a person by the name of John Calvin. And we should know who John Calvin is, I think. So, and others during his exile in Geneva during the reign of Queen Mary I of England. Now, if you read the history of John Knox, uh, he didn't do himself service in a lot of times. He was kind of, he was a kind of a curmudgeon, okay? He was feisty and somewhat surly and combative, but anyway, he did 
uh, drive, if you will, uh, the Scottish Reformation. And that resulted actually in what we know as Presbyterianism. Would you imagine that? Then we go on, uh, the three forms of unity. Uh, and I'm on page three on top, okay, of my handout. Okay, the three forms of unity, which is pretty significant because this resulted in what we know as the Canons of Dort, okay? And this was um, actually a canon that was written in uh, response to Arminianism, okay? So, so now we have uh, Calvinism coming to the forefront of, uh, you might say, Reformed doctrine. And then uh, finally, and I'm just gonna skip here, the Irish Articles of Religion in 1615, which was largely written by a James Usser. We really don't know too much about this, but it is significant in our uh, denomination. In fact, he was the Archbishop of Armagh, okay, in, in Ireland, and he wrote this, um, these Articles of Religion were, which were used quite prolifically in the writing of Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay, so a lot of scholars think that uh, the, the divines, if you will, of the Westminster Assembly lean very heavily on the Irish Articles of Religion written in 1615. Okay, I'm going to, you know, turn a little bit here and just, you know, because in my head I was thinking, okay, this is all great, but what did, what did Christians have in terms of the Word of God during this time, okay? Remember, you know, before Luther, um, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, their Bible was written in what? What was it written in? Latin, okay? I never took Latin, but if in an, I, I was in a Roman Catholic Church and in fact was an altar boy, so in fact I had to recite Latin, but if you asked me what it meant, I couldn't tell you what it meant, okay? So, um, so point is, is during this time, um, we had uh, divines, if you will, scholars who started writing scripture in the common language because that was a big bugaboo with the uh, reformers at the time, right? This is wrong. We need to have scripture in common language so that everybody could read it because guess what? If we read this scripture, I think we're smart enough to know generally what, the, what God is trying to tell us, right? So these, these dudes started writing, um, you know, the scripture in a common language. We have primarily uh, Tyndale and possibly John R Rogers, which came out with the Matthew, and I misspelled it, Matthew Bible, which I, I wanna say is kind of the same thing, uh, or, or you might say evolved into what is known as the Geneva Bible. And this, in fact, was kind of a popular, um, you know, popular translation at the time. But one of the things that Tyndale did was he translated scripture from the original Hebrew and Greek, okay, and not from the, from the Latin Vulgate. So this was kind of a, a big deal, you know, at the time. But later on, uh, in, during the reign of, in England, of James uh, I of England, and he was also known as James IV, or was it VI, I can't remember, of Scotland, he authorized uh, the King James, what we know as the King James Bible of 1611, okay? But 
my point here is that there was God's word published in the common language of, of the day. And to my point before, now we have all these ideas, if you will, of what the word of God is trying to tell us, okay? So there's no cons real consistency, if you will, on the continent of Europe and even uh, in uh, the realm of England, if you will, even despite the fact that the Episcopal Church at the time had the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 articles, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, let's move on. Westminster Standards, what exactly are they? So when I say Westminster Standards at the time, um, again, uh, the Parliament called together the divines and they said, okay, that's it, we need to start from, from basically from scratch. But the first, but the first thing that um, they wanted to do was they wanted to revamp the 39 articles, which, which was the Church of England's, you might say, confession, you know, at the time, and it was incorporated into the Book of Common Prayer. But anyway, um, this was produced during the years that I posted here, 1643 to 1649, mainly, but from then to 1653, actually, after they, they agreed on how the church was to be run, they needed to start finding pastors and teachers, right? Because the Church of England was nothing, it was all the old bishops were tossed out and they needed to, to start from scratch. So, which is kind of, uh, you know, with a blueprint of how we do things now in the Presbyterian Church, interestingly enough. Uh, not throwing everybody out, but, you know, ordaining uh, ministers. Okay. A number of documents concerning the faith and practice, all meant to be subordinate to scripture. And I'm on page four here. Number one, the first thing they did was, let's look at the form of church government dealing with church polity. And if you were at Sunday school last week, you heard Christian tell us all about it. So what, what Christian told you last week is very similar to what the divines came up with during the Westminster Assembly back in 16-ish 44, okay? Then they turned to the directory of worship. So it's basically a liturgical group of suggestions, if you will, or a manual produced by the Westminster Assembly to replace the book of, of prayer. So it wasn't exactly a liturgical document, but it was, this is okay, so during worship, this is what the format should be, okay? Or, you know, during a funeral, this, these are the kind of things that ministers need to do. Or during a wedding, this is what you do. So it was a directory of worship. And then thirdly, they came what, what we know as the confession of faith. Okay, and if you read the Confession of Faith, it's a very broad, you might say, and very um, thorough treatment of what the divines at the time believed uh, the Word of God was telling us, okay, or their interpretation. So, ranging from, you know, the authority of Scripture all the way to what we, the, the, what we know as eschatology or eschatological dealings, okay? And then lastly, the standards included what is known as the Shorter Catechism, 
and a larger catechism. So once, so once the confession was written, it was, well, how do we teach this to others? And that's what catechism means, okay? So the divines uh, crafted a shorter catechism, which they said was easier to read and concise for beginners, and secondarily, a longer catechism to be more exact and comprehensive. In fact, in the day, the longer catechism was supposed to be used by ministers and teachers of the word on Sundays. So they would pick, okay, here's number three. Okay, we're going to talk about this. And that is uh, then uh, used in, in sermons at the time to teach uh, the uh, foundation of the faith. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, at that time, again, there was supposed to be one catechism, but um, as instructed by the parliament at the time, but various Scottish divines, of course, they're kind of feisty, became disappointed by the work and following debate recommended that the catechism be split into the shorter and longer. So that's why we have a shorter catechism and a longer catechism. Okay, any real quick questions before I start getting into the history, the origins? Yes, <laughs> Shawnee. Um, how many questions in the longer catechism? That's, a, I think memory serves something like 130 something. Do I got that right? Yeah, it's, it's a lot longer than the, shorter catechism. And also the answers are quite more involved and specific. So if you were to read the larger catechism, it's, you know, it's pretty beefy, okay? Good question. Okay, um, how did this all start? I mean, okay, we talked about like, how do we, how do we get here? Well, you know, it all started with Henry VIII, okay? So, um, you know, he's, I, I think the, the man was dysfunctional, but, you know, that's just my opinion, which most historians have opinions. But, uh, you know, he lived from 1509 to 1547. And, of course, I think most of us may know he was married, uh, let's see, um, I forget her name right off. In fact, I will say here that you could go to our website and I have all my notes, um, you know, on the website, right? Is that right, Shemaine? So if you want something, if you want to see those outlines, uh, feel free to, to look that up. But Henry VIII, from her first, his uh, first wife, uh, she wasn't able to produce, if you will, a um, an heir, so he got kind of um, you know beside himself, and he wanted uh, an annulment. Well, the um, uh, let's see, the uh, uh, Pope at the time would not give him an annulment, so he didn't like that idea. So he said, "Okay, well, forget you guys. Okay, we're gonna the Church of England is gonna go it along because, of course, like I said before, the monarchs." were responsible for the religious activities at the time, okay? So in fact, um, you know, he treat, mistreated his uh, first wife so much, uh, he, she, they did have a daughter, okay? Her name was Mary. And Mary is known as Bloody Mary, okay? Which we'll get to, you know, in a, in a quick second here. But anyway, um, he, um, actually she was, uh, 
I want to say she was beheaded uh, and um, over you know a period of time, and then he uh, married uh, another another a lady. Okay, but anyway, he had what uh, seven, six or seven wives. Uh, one of them was named by the name of, guess what, Jane Seymour. When I read that, I started cracking up because I'm like, 007, there it is. Okay, but no, uh, Jane Seymour had a, um, another, uh, I wanna say, daughter, and her name was Elizabeth. And then later on, from another wife, he had uh, finally sired an, an Edward, okay, which was then to be Edward the Sixth. okay? So after Henry VIII dies, Edward VI, you know, is, um, is now uh, the reigning monarch, but he's only, what, like he's in his teens and at the time, and so he was uh, led, and the government was also helped to be led by a group of regents, and Edward at the time was very Protestant-leaning, okay? So he allowed now the Reformation to blossom, if you will, uh, to a point where um, uh, Cranmer, okay, I mentioned his name before, uh, he was the Archbishop at the time of the Church of England, and so he then penned uh, the 42 Articles, okay? And uh, he lived not too long, so he was in reign from 1547, uh, to 1553, and at 1553, after his death, Mary I uh, came to the throne, and unfortunately, she was Roman Catholic-leaning, okay? So she didn't like all the reforms that, were, that happened in England, and during that time, brought England back, if you will, or tried to bring them back to Rome. So you can imagine uh, what was going through the minds of many of the reformers in the Church of England. They just didn't like that. They were very sensitive to anybody who would do that to them, right? Then, in a sense, I, it depends on who you talk to, but after Mary I uh, was put out of, uh, out of uh, rule, Elizabeth I comes along, and Elizabeth I, uh, was um, a daughter of Jane Seymour, and Jane Seymour was Protestant-leaning, okay? So she was, um, you might say, she was um, brought up in, in more of a Protestant, you know, teaching environment. So, uh, but she was considered as more of a moderate. She wasn't, she wasn't very, uh, she was Reformed, but not as Reformed as most Puritans and Presbyterians at the time liked. And she even resisted, you know, deeper reforms. After that comes James I uh, and uh, the fourth of Scotland. He reigned from 1603 to 1625. And lo and behold, people thought, hot diggity dog, this guy is from Scotland. He's a Presbyterian. Things are going to start rolling, but he was not as reformed as people thought he should be, okay? Although, uh, I will say that uh, uh, history does speak more kindly, if you will, on James I, because he then, you know, allowed, um, you know, more, you know, the 39, uh, excuse me, he allowed people to go to the uh, Dort for the canons of Dort, and um, 
you know, there are some things that he did that were actually um, more reformed even than Elizabeth. Okay. So, you know, time moves on. Um, you might say, in, uh, oh, during the James uh, reign of James, and I have it on my other notes, if you will, uh, that uh, there are, as soon as he got into, um, you might say, he, as soon as he got into office, there were a couple of things that occurred, primarily what's called the gunpowder plot. And if, if you ever saw the movie called, uh, was it V for Vendetta? Uh, they talk about the gunpowder plot or the, a person by the name of Guy Fawkes. Guy Fawkes was, uh, and of course, you know, Hollywood got the whole incident wrong, but um, uh, Guy Fawkes was a, um, was a Roman Catholic, you might say, a rebel, okay? And that was an incident where he, he and a bunch of others decided that, you know, James is going to be more Protestant and he's not going to bring, bring, uh, bring England back to Rome, so we're going to put a bunch of kegs of gunpowder, you know, under the uh, Westminster Abbey so when uh, the parliament met, we could do away with James and a whole entire parliament all in one fell swoop. Well, somebody found out uh, about the plot, and so this was then uh, in the minds of a lot of Protestant reformers at the time that, hey, you know what? This is not going to go away. So you could see the tension, if you will, between Protestants and Roman Catholics even then. So then comes along after James' uh, reign, uh, we have Charles I uh, from 1625 to 1649. And uh, I'm going to try and shorten this whole thing, but this, it's almost a sad story, you know, in my mind. But Charles I was uh, Roman Catholic leaning. And that was even during a time where, you know, after uh, the teachings of Jacobus Arminius, uh, who was, as we know, Arminian, and Roman Catholicism, uh, if you will, is more Arminian in its thinking. So what Charles did is he, um, he promoted uh, a person by the name of William Laud to be Archbishop of Canterbury in 1633. So whoever is the Archbishop uh, of Canterbury is basically, you might say, the religious head, if you will, in, uh, in the Church of England. So he was not fully reformed at all, okay? He was Arminian in his thinking. So now you could see Parliament, many of the people in the Church of England, divines, if you will, are Puritans or Presbyterians. Now we have this dude uh, named uh, William Laud, and he's not, he's not passive in how he's ruling the Church of England. He is actually forcing people, the Book of Common, of, of common Prayer and of the 39 articles on many churches who were more Calvinistic in their leaning, to the point to the point where, uh, and I'm going to fast forward here. Um, I'm going to go to page, let's see. Um, yes, page six. Uh, on the top of page six in bold, I have an incident where um, the dean of Edinburgh uh, 
started to use the Book of Common Prayer in Scotland. Now, the situation in Scotland is where they're all Presbyterian Covenanters, okay? They adopted, you know, John Knox's, um, you might say, confession uh, in polity. They're Presbyterian. And now the, this guy from Edinburgh, this dean, uh, starts a service, and they're using the Book of Common Prayer. Well, a lady by the name of Jenny Geddes decides to throw a stool at his head, and this starts a riot, okay? Now, I know this sounds funny, but this is reality, okay? So, uh, and it's, uh, and it's uh, one of the uh, books that I read by Lethem, um, and it's in your bibliography, talks about this. Well, it starts a riot to the point where the Scottish Kirk then comes up with uh, official rejection of the, uh, of the Episcopal of the Church of England, and they call it the National Covenant, and that happened in 1638. Well, this precipitates what's called the Bishop's War between the King and Scotland, because the King is like, I'm in charge, I'm telling you guys what to do, this is it, right? So they start you know, a war with, um, with Scotland, and this further precipitates um, Parliament then to act, okay? You have the king and you have Parliament, okay? So now the Parliament, uh, the king actually calls Parliament because he needs money to fight Scotland and who knows who. Okay, so Parliament gets together and uh, they don't like what the king is doing either. Okay, so they say, all right, uh, in 1640, it's considered the long Parliament and the Parliament and the king don't get along, uh, basically because Parliament is mostly, cons their constituents are Puritans and Presbyterians, right? So um, not only is the king doing wrong to them civilly, but also, you know, from a, um, you know, from a religious standpoint as well. So this all, you know, leads, if you will, uh, to um, uh, the king siding with the Irish, okay, with the Irish, and at the time the Irish rebelled against uh, the Protestants at the time, in fact, there was quite a, uh, a bit of Protestants that were killed in the island of, of Ireland before this by uh, Roman, Roman Catholics. And so the king sides with Ireland, and now the uh, parliament, which is at odds with the king, decides that, well, we better side with, the, uh, with uh, um, an ally, if you will, uh, with Scotland, okay? Now this leads, ultimately to, um, you know, the parliament throwing out or dissolving, you know, the Church of England. They're siding with the, with the Scots. And so they, uh, the parliament at the time says, okay, there's no more Church of England. What do we do? Well, what they did is they called together uh, assembly, which is called the Westminster Assembly. Okay, so this led Parliament calling to bear a synod, if you will, as it's requested by what they called the Grand Remonstrance, to reevaluate re the theology of the church. What should the Church of England look like? What should it look like? Again, the Church of England is now in disarray. 
So on my page eight, uh, they call together the English Parliament. Uh, the, the English Parliament calls the assembly on June 12th, 1943. And at that time, they got together. It depends on who you read and who you talk to, but generally speaking, uh, roughly 121 to 151 divine theologians. They're made up of uh, um, Van Dixhorn says 119 English divines, two from each county in England, one from each county in Wales, and two from Oxford and two from Cambridge, which were the two leading you know, universities of the land, and four from London. Additionally, 10 from the House of Lords and 20 from the House of Commons, so civil folks, not divines. And even uh, there were three invited from the church, from the French Reformed Church, okay? So this is a large number of people, you know, in this assembly. Um, and uh, so what happens then and, and they're from different flavors, if you will, too. So many of them were Presbyterians. Some of them were Puritans. Some of them were Congregationalists. Uh, most of the Episcopalians refused to attend, partly because the assembly was not a you know, valid convocation led by the king. But um, you know, there was independence and a group also called Erastians. And Erastians were a group of people who believed that church discipline should be led by the government and not by the church itself. So, so right there we have an assembly uh, which have kind of differing points of view, okay, even. So these men met at the Westminster Abbey while this war was raging on. And, um, you know, uh, it, it's kind of interesting because one of the authors talks about, you know, they even, in some of the minutes, they even heard, you know, cannon fire and things like that while they're going through all these deliberations. But uh, King Charles, um, you know, at the time, you know, because they, they, um, they started this assembly and because of un other things that occurred. He vacates London, he allies with the Irish Catholics, and then of course, you know, Parliament, as I mentioned before, reaches out to Scotland for help. And now Scotland's, uh, the Scottish Christians say, aha, now's our chance, okay? Now's our chance. We're gonna form what's called a pact, called a Solemn League uh, and Covenant with the Parliament. And this was, uh, it, this was done for the reason to promote and bind its signatories to the reformation and defense of religion in the three kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland. So the whole objective you know, of the Westminster uh, Assembly changed on October 25th, you know, 1943. And because of that, the Scots now uh, send, uh, you might say, a group of divines from the Scottish church just to make sure those English guys know what they're doing, right? Okay, so that's the way, that's my interpretation, but I think that's what they were getting at because they want to make sure that whatever's promulgated, you know, through the assembly, it has some flavor to what they know as, you know, Presbyterian at the time. So the first task was the nature and organization of the church which is like what we talked about last week, 
that's what they came up with in the standards, okay? So it's, you know, the, the nature of the church. Then secondarily, uh, they came out with the, um, you might say the, uh, what was it? The book of, um, uh, oh, come on, Rick, where is it? Yes, directory of worship, and then thirdly, the confession of faith. Now, the, um, the first part, which is the, um, uh, not the directory of worship, but, um, let's see, the form of church government, that was done quickly. They promulgated that uh, in 1644, so they had a year to, you know, discuss, you know, that whole thing. And then uh, by 1647, uh, the Confession of Faith was sent to Parliament, and the Parliament ratified it in 1648. Then after that, they, uh, they penned and came out with the, uh, the shorter and the larger catechisms. So that happens in, uh, you might say, at the end of 1649. And then as I mentioned before, after that, you know, they had the task of now remanning up, you might say, the church, okay? So choosing, choosing ministers to minister to the various churches in, in England. And so there you have it. Um, and, and what we know, uh, lastly, and before we get into a completely something completely different, um, uh, we have, uh, you know, the, the Presbyterians that came over to this continent, okay, carried with them the Westminster Confession of Faith. And as a point of reference, lastly, uh, in 1729, the old school of Philadelphia, you might say, the first Presbyterian Synod in North America adopted the Westminster uh, standards and the Westminster Confession of Faith in the larger and shorter catechisms, and what is called the Adopting Act of 1729. Okay, so there, then the American Presbyterian Church, if you will, was in agreement that the Westminster Confession of Faith was the confession of the Presbyterian churches in colonial America. However, if you were to read that Confession of Faith, there's a couple of articles in there that seem kind of weird. You're like, uh, you know, okay, the Pope is the Antichrist, and we're talking about, you know, ruling, you know, who rules actually the civil government. Well, uh, and you can find this on the OPC website, but during the Synod of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church USA, in 1787, sections in chapter 20 and 23 regarding the ruling of magistrates uh, and, of course, you know, the, the Pope, uh, his, his thing was changed. And then they agreed upon that, and here we are today. <laughs>